Good morning. Uh, I'm John Schreiber, Head of Infectious Diseases at Connecticut Children's. Welcome to Ask the Experts. Today I'm doing the introduction. Uh, Dr. Salazar has uh, another talk that he has to be at. Welcome. Uh, there's a lot going on with COVID. Our plan today is to spend about half an hour with updates and then open it up to you, the community, our providers, parents, nurses, uh, for questions. Um, and we'll, that's what we'll do. I'm advancing the slide. First of all, uh, happy holidays to everyone. We are coming up on the holiday season, Thanksgiving first, and uh, everyone have a great Thanksgiving next week. Uh, this is what's going on in the United States right now. Uh, we, we are starting to have geographic resurgences in some areas, particularly the upper Midwest. Minnesota's hard hit right now. And actually, the Northeast is starting to take off. I'm going to show you some data. Vermont, uh, New England, unfortunately, a lot of new cases. We're going to talk about this and, and what this represents. The South at the moment is relatively quiescent, but it's an under-immunized population. And if we do have a winter resurgence, unfortunately, uh, there will be lots of more cases there as the next phase. So what's going on? It looks like we're entering a fifth resurgence in the US. You can see we've increased, it went down to about 60,000, 70,000 new cases a day. It's back up to about 100. And the curve's going back up. It's not what we want to see. Kind of is what it is. I do think this time this resurgence will be muted with less deaths and less ICU hospitalizations. But there's the caveat in terms of the hospitalizations, we're going to need to get going on our boosters. And I'm going to show you some data on that and what that really is about. You'll notice that so far hospitalizations were still a lot, 50,000 people hospitalized across the US. So far that hasn't shot up, but unfortunately as this fifth resurgence takes off, we know there will be an increase in hospitalizations and um, we're gonna have to watch this carefully and I'll, I'll show you data as we move ahead. The deaths remain about a thousand a day. It's still a lot of Americans passing each day, everyone with a family, loved ones, um, but it's a lot less than it was and at the moment hasn't shot up yet with this new resurgence and we'll need to watch this very, very carefully. Um, it's my anticipation that it will remain muted, particularly in well immunized areas, but we'll have to see how this happens. Now the US unfortunately remains a patchwork of immunizations. There are a lot of under immunized states. Uh, we're about 59% fully vaccinated, uh, which is really a very mediocre number worldwide now. Uh, a number of the Western European countries are better than this. Um, we're pretty good with 65 and above. It's about 85% are fully immunized. And it's going to be, as I said, extremely important that particularly this group get boosted. And I'm going to show you the data on that. So we have work to do, and unfortunately, um, each state's handling it differently. Uh, there's a lot of rhetoric, and the traction to get this number up, unfortunately, is limited. Uh, the new immunization for children that was released, already 10% of children have gotten their first dose. It's quite a good number. It's a very excellent uptake of that vaccine. I do think it's going to have an impact. We'll have to see how the whole country manages that. And this is immunizations, the immunization map, and you can see the Northeast is well immunized. And I'm going to talk about the outbreak that we're having shortly. 
the southeast uh, and the upper west, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, are poorly immunized and again, very susceptible in the new resurgence to having more deaths and hospitalizations. Um, Minnesota is relatively under immunized as well and having a severe outbreak right now with uh, many hospital ICU beds are filled. Uh, there's some hospitals, I believe the National Guard has been called out to help out in some hospitals in uh, upper Minnesota, Duluth area. Now, in New England, we have a problem. Uh, Vermont, for example, uh, for the first time is having a large outbreak. You can see there were three, three or 400 new cases um, daily, uh, which is huge for Vermont. There are only 600,000 people in the state. It's a very heavily immunized state. The people getting um, are showing up with this are either unimmunized or immunized, but waning immunity immunized in elderly and uh, in high risk and things like that. And again, this is one of the reasons boosting is becoming more urgent, particularly in the 65 and above groups. Vermont hospitalizations, and this is where the data point that out. So you look at that number, you say, oh my God, we have a huge outbreak in Vermont. The reality is if you look at the hospitalizations and that line where the arrow is, the majority of the increase in hospitalizations in Vermont are 60 and above. So these are immunized people, waning immunity, and where the, the um, lower antibody titers, because your immune system's just not as good when you're elderly, has resulted in a susceptible group who are getting sick and hospitalized. So that's the age group we really need to boost as soon as possible. And I think it will blunt the hospitalizations and deaths in this new resurgence. And that's one of the reasons there's so much focus on boosters right now. We're gonna talk more about that. So in Vermont, these hospitalizations are in people above 60 mostly. You can see the other lines are younger. It's a pretty steady, very small number hospitalized in that those age groups, really small. It's really the older group. And by the way, that top line is 70 and above. So you've got 60 and then 70 and above are the vast majority of hospitalizations for Vermont, elderly. Now, Connecticut so far, our winter resurgence is quite modest. You can see um, we are increasing. Uh, we had about 550, 600 cases uh, the last couple of days. Um, it is going up. We know it's going up. The governor's announced it's going up, but at the moment, it's pretty modest. We have to be very careful. One of my worries is, as I walk into stores, um, a lot of people have given up on the masks. And I think particularly if you're 60 and above and you haven't been boosted, when you're inside, you need to have a mask on. Uh, it's very clear. And I, my preference would be uh, all of us wear masks indoors. I don't, outdoors, I think is fine. So if you're in a strange place, you know, a store, and you don't know the people, you should really wear a mask indoors. If you're in a family gathering and everyone's immunized, fine. But I think uh, what I see in the food shops and, and the stores, people with no mask, I think probably that's not a great idea when you look at these numbers. And that word needs to get out to people. I, everyone's tired of it. I don't think we're gonna be nearly the resurgence we had last winter but we're gonna to need to have common sense to keep this down. Everybody plays a part, every single person. High levels of immunization in Connecticut have kept our death rate extremely low. And you'll see this is quite low. Now I will tell you though, we have had some recent deaths. There was an outbreak in a nursing home in Canaan, Connecticut, not New Canaan. Canaan is up in Litchfield County with eight deaths in one nursing home. All were immunized and elderly frail. So we need to boost the nursing homes. All of those people in the nursing homes need to get the booster. I know that DPH and the state are working on that. So we are gonna have, until that's done, we are gonna have a creeping up of the death rate in Connecticut. But I think again, the, the state's been very nimble. People get it. 
I think we'll probably keep this under control. But we have to watch carefully. And you can see the community-wide spread in, in Connecticut right now is very spotty. Now that upper Litchfield, there's actually some red now in the latest one because of the um, nursing home outbreak. We have a 4% positivity rate, which is double what it was about a month ago. And you can see the eastern part of the state has a lot of community spread. So, you know, we're not going to eradicate this. And I'll show you some data that's definite. We're never going to eradicate this. But if we can control it and convert it to just a bad flu, where we protect those vulnerable from death and hospitalization, I, I think that's a victory. And we're close to that here. But we don't want to undo it. We have to be careful going into the winter and the holidays. Now, why are we giving boosters? And I, I want to show these data. So these are data looking at effectiveness of the vaccines against hospitalization and weeks after the second dose. And you can see you have decreasing effectiveness of hospitalization for both the preventing hospitalization for both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines over time. And we know this, and, and after six, seven months, it decreases. It's still not bad. It's still 60, 70 percent, but it's not 90 percent. And those are the breakthroughs in the hospitalizations that we're seeing. And so, you know, that's why boosters are going to be important. And, you know, this is, it's not everyone's, oh, that's a terrible vaccine. Not correct. If you look at other respiratory viruses, look at influenza. We get annual immunizations because immunity wanes. And, you know, if we get influenza shot too early in the season, you're not immune by the time January comes around. So you won't use, that's why we give it in October. So this is pretty common with respiratory viruses and, and waning immunity. And we just need to recognize that and take care of it. We have fantastic vaccine tools to do that this time. Now, uh, it's also important, there's a lot of froth out there politically. If Florida legislature just passed a thing, if you've had past COVID, you don't have to get immunized. It's really not correct. And it, the data show very clearly that infection-induced immunity is not as good as vaccine-induced immunity and probably doesn't last as long. So there's a, there's a site there you can go on. The data is pretty good on this. You know, just go with the facts, right? So if you're naturally infected, you'll have good immunity for 90, 90 days or so, three or four months. If you get two doses of the vaccine, you'll have pretty good immunity for six months. And it goes farther out even then. So vaccine-induced immunity is superior to natural infection. And that's why we suggest people who've been naturally infected still get immunized because they're going to have better immunity. It's just kind of the facts. And there's a lot of froth on this, but those are the facts. So if you've had COVID, you know, wait a month or so, but then do get immunized. Now, um, vaccination and waning immunity hits home. I, I was on the Nuvance Health System um, staff meeting about COVID. I was standing in for someone, and I, I freely admit that I, you know, screenshot this slide. I took it from the Nuvance, Nuvance uh, uh, presentation because I think we have to pay attention to this. This is Danbury Hospital. They have 26 positive employees who are immunized. They all got COVID six months out. They, they didn't, they had not boosted yet. They have a lot of hospitalizations from COVID. Some of them are vaccinated, Danbury Hospital. Eight out of 10 hospitalizations of the yesterday, a couple of days ago, were vaccinated. Um, but they're almost all from nursing homes and assisted living situations. So they're unboosted, elderly, frail, who um, are getting admitted to the hospital because there's an outbreak of COVID in, in the nursing facilities. So you can see 11 out of 17 from, from the last 10 days until November 10th had gotten their full immunization, but it was all remote, more than five months prior to this admission. And as I said, the majority were from assisted living. So we have to pay attention to this. 
uh, and just recognize, boost our vulnerable as fast as possible. Now, the FDA is going to release it for everyone. Everyone should get boosted because we're not going to keep community spread down if we don't do that. But clearly, this is the group that's going to be hospitalized and potentially uh, have mortality. So, but this is real. This is us in Connecticut, Danbury Hospital. So I think everyone should pay attention to this. Now we have tools to manage this. We didn't last year, but now we do. And if you look at the booster coverage, this is from the DPH uh, from uh, the 12th. Um, you can see we have work to do on boosters in the far right. My uh, pointer's not working anymore. On the far right, you can see we've only boosted 43% of the 65 and above population who are fully vaccinated. So we need that at 80 and 90% fairly quickly because we are having outbreaks in assisted living facilities right now in the state. So we'll get there, but this is where I know DPH is spending a lot of time and attention right now, trying to get the vaccine out to this cohort in a variety of nursing home and assisted living situations. So we have to keep very close watch on this uh, in the state and frankly, all of the states. The FDA, I hear, is going to authorize boosters today for all adults, and then the ACIP has to, and CDC have to approve it. But at the moment, it's a no-brainer. 65 and above, six months out, get a booster. J&J &J vaccine, two months out, it falls off and hospitalizations increase. It's not as good a vaccine. Get boosted with an mRNA vaccine. And other people 18 to 64 all will be eligible shortly, uh, I think in the next week. But um, obviously, underlying medical conditions, high risk, or healthcare provider, teacher, in, exposed to lots of people who could potentially have COVID, get boosted. So uh, this is, I think, going to be very important to control this current resurgence, which will be muted if we stay on top of it. This isn't going to be what it was last January, if we stay on top of it. <clears throat> now, also to show you, okay, we're going to boost the elderly. How do we know it works? This is a really nice study. Uh, looking at this from Israel, looking at adults age 60 who got the booster, and you can see um, they the arrow shows the first the top blue arrow, their first titer before they get boosted. These are international units of antibody against spike protein. Yeah, uh, it's 440. And then you go down to the bottom, they get boosted. It goes up to 25,000. So a huge spike in IgG, you know, no pun intended, a huge spike in antibodies against spike protein, that's IgG for elderly who got their third dose. Lots of antibodies made really, really good boosting. And it's possible in this age group, it should be a three vaccine series anyway. It may come to that's what we do for elderly. So it's gonna be really high antibody tires. It's gonna work. And this is why we're boosting. And this is particularly in the older age groups. Now let's talk about deaths in children from COVID-19. It, it has killed kids. It's probably a couple of hundred kids nationally. It's not a lot. It's a blessing that children have been uh, relatively resistant to mortality from this virus. It's great news, but some have died. This is a deep dive on those who have passed children who have died in the United States. And I wanted to bring this out because it really shows our disparities. And you can see that 14 it's percent on the right, 14 percent were white. 28% were African-American, 46% were Latino, and 5% American Indian. So over 70% were minorities, and that's the pediatric deaths we see in the United States. So, you know, you can wrap your head around that. You know, is it access to medical care? Is it genetics? Is it the fact that there's more obesity in those populations and higher risk because there's no supermarket in the neighborhood? 
All of these things factor into disparities in healthcare. It's showing up in mortality in children from COVID. Very important. I don't have an answer today, but I want everyone to look at that. And it, it, it may inform for us to improve some things that we're doing in, in, for children um, in these minority groups. And the deaths in children, interestingly, are more frequent in older children in the teenage era. And you can see the deaths, there, there's some deaths early on, but then you see a spike in deaths as, as kids get older. And you've got um, died in the hospital, died at home, or in the emergency department. <clears throat> so it's interesting. We have a lot more to learn about this virus that we do not understand yet. And uh, is it the immune system and all those cytokines as you get over older, you have overreaction? Uh, we don't fully understand why it seems to spare relatively young children. Most young children. Now, Europe is undergoing um, a big resurgence. I, I want you know to give you a little bit of personal stuff. We you know we have a European trip plan for next year, which may not happen. And we have to cancel it by December 31st. Th these kind of graphs make me think I'm probably canceling it. So this is Germany, a highly immunized country, and they are rocketing off uh, in a big resurgence. There's a lot of pockets of under-immunized. So again, it's mostly unimmunized, uh, elderly and others, kids. And you can see they've got 50,000 cases a day in Germany. Uh, I mean, it's really rocketing off and deaths are rapidly increasing in Germany as well. So. France has an outbreak, Greece. So most of the EU now is in their next resurgence and it looks to be more robust than ours at the moment. We need to watch this because this could be us. If, if we throw up our hands and don't do what we need to do, we're gonna need to have the discipline to immunize, get the boosters out, wear masks when we have to, and we will not be like this, but this could happen. And Germany, uh, again, highly immunized, a very organized healthcare system. And you can see the hotspots are particularly in southern Germany. They have about 68% fully vaccinated, so it's about 10% better than the United States. Um, but actually, some of the poor vaccinated states in Germany are the ones with the outbreaks. So it's spotty the same way it is in the United States. So uh, this we have to watch carefully. We don't want to end up like this. Now, uh, there's another thing that's happening, which is why I told you this is not going away. This is a fascinating study. You know, why would you do this? But they did. They, they got deer that were being hunted in Iowa, and then they screened them for COVID because there was some worry it had gotten in the deer population. And I'm sorry to tell you that it has gotten in the deer population. There were a high number of Iowa deer that were, were at hunting season or wherever, screened, trachea, et cetera. And they're PCR positive for SARS-CoV-2, and they could isolate the virus. So um, this, this is now a zoonotic infection, and there's an animal reservoir, free-living animal reservoir uh, deer, white-tailed deer in the United States. This is a problem, and it means that this virus will be persisting in the environment forever. We can manage that, but it, we're not going to get rid of this virus. Let me show you some of those data. They're pretty interesting. It's hard to see, but you can see in some of the counties, 100% of the deer were COVID positive by PCR. You can see the hundreds in the middle column there and it went down depending on the county so clearly the deer in certain counties in Iowa were passing COVID around it, and they don't get sick from it they don't get very sick from it they don't die but they're passing it around and so again if a hunter 
is exposed that deer doesn't wear gloves, uh, that hunter who might be 65 and poorly immunized or immunized but not boosted could acquire COVID from the deer. So it hasn't, we haven't proved that that's happened yet, but it's a classic zoonosis now where it's sitting in a wild animal population. And so the USDA did further studies just doing serology and they found that 67% of Michigan deer had antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, about 20% in New York, 31% in Pennsylvania. So it's there and it's spreading through all the white-tailed deer population in the United States. So again, you know, most of us don't come in contact with white-tailed deer personally, but some of us do. And so that's going to be a reservoir we have to watch carefully. And, you know, you tell hunters, wear gloves. If you're harvesting the lungs, you have to have a mask on. I mean, this is going to change behavior as, uh, particularly for the hunting community as they manage this. Now, reindeer, um, this is a picture of reindeer in Siberia. Uh, I know I can promise you Santa has immunized his reindeer. There's a special reindeer vaccine, but this is actually real reindeer in Siberia. And what I wanted to show you is the reindeer herders are getting immunized in Siberia. So that's a form in the right is a stairway up to a mobile clinic. These are herders of those reindeer I just showed you in Siberia. And that's the form documenting that he just got immunized. So it's a great story. So um, we're immunizing the reindeer herders. We don't actually have a deer vaccine yet. Uh, but um, again, if the herders are immunized, we'll probably be in pretty good shape. So I wanted, I don't know if those are the same reindeer stock that Santa uses, but it's certainly possible. Now there are new antiviral, we have more armamentarium coming in. This didn't show up very well, I apologize. So I'll work through it with you. There, there are two new antivirals, one from Pfizer, called Paxlovid, and they mixed it with Ritonavir, and then there's also one from Merck called Malnupravir. Both of them have excellent efficacy in preventing hospitalization, and I, I apologize, you can't see that. This is a Nuvon slide that I also freely admit I borrowed. The bottom line is both work. They have a big reduction in hospitalization uh, if you take it early, and so these are going to be extremely useful tools as we move through this and understand how we manage this to have antivirals that we could take that would reduce hospitalization, mitigate serious disease, uh, and again, prevent mortality. So in addition, immunization is gonna be best because you don't have to you know, constantly maneuver a pill you have to take at, at, the, at a moment's notice, but should you have a breakthrough and, not, and you take this early, this could mitigate any hospitalization. I certainly in the assisted living communities where we're having a problem right now, if we could get these drugs out there, this could be very, very useful. They're much easier to give than monoclonals. They're oral pills. They're not intravenous. Uh, and so this is gonna be a much easier way to intervene. So very exciting, excellent efficacy. And, and I know there's a big debate in the FDA about how to get these out there. It's very small numbers still. And so how, how this gets released, perhaps as emergency use authorization, I don't know, but it's gonna be soon. Pediatric vaccines, as you're aware, um, excellent efficacy, 90%, 91% efficacy in symptomatic disease. The vials are different. Those of you out there know it's, a, it's an orange vial. You can't take the adult vaccine and dilute it. You have a special pediatric vial, which is great. It's 10 microgram dose. This is Pfizer only against the 30 microgram adult dose. So it's a lower dose. It's a smaller injection volume. Uh, and so, and you get 10 doses per vial. So it's different. And I think that's very important. There won't be any mix-ups between giving too much from an adult vial. Uh, it's pediatric only, and you can't give the pediatric vial to adults because the dose is too low. 
I would also say the FDA and the CDC have requested that we stick strictly by age, not by weight and size. And so if you're a four-year-old, but you're big enough to be a five-year-old, you really can't get the vaccine until you're five. That's the rules that the FDA has placed on this by age, not by weight or size. And then to remind everyone, this is what's authorized for our vaccines currently. Um, nothing below four and under yet, although both Moderna and Pfizer and I think Novavax have studies down to six months. We don't have those data yet. Five to 11 years old is Pfizer only. Moderna data is being cooked, made, and it's happening, and they're going to give it to the FDA shortly. 12 to 17-year-old is Pfizer, and 18 years and above is Pfizer, Moderna, and the J&J &J vaccine. But recognize the J&J vaccine looks like it requires early boosting. So again, I think if someone chooses the single dose J&J, they need to be told you're gonna to need a booster in a few months. Um, now, what about breastfeeding? I've gotten a lot of questions about this. And this is a nice study uh, looking at what, what happens with antibodies in breast milk. Now, the mRNA does not get into breast milk. That's been looked at. It just breaks down so quickly. It does not get into breast milk. But antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 do, and this is a really nice study that came out of Spain, and you can see the control groups on the left, and then the right are immunized women who are lactating, and there's a, that's IgA on my left, the, far, the biggest thing, that's all IgA, there's a lot of IgA in breast milk, so it's going to protect the baby. Um, if you look at IgM, there's not much, and then on the right, I believe is IgG, and there's some IgG in the breast milk as well, quite a bit. So women immunized with the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine have lots of anti-spike IgA in breast milk. Remember, the mRNA itself does not get into the breast milk, so this is good for babies. This will hopefully protect them. And now we've documented that there will be a lot of IgA and IgG antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 in breast milk. So I think this is great news that we can inform a lactating women uh, that they will be protecting their baby if they're immunized. Now, I want to talk about the churn that's out there. You know, every every month or week or whenever I do this with you, I, I just shake my head on some things. Here's a, here's a doctor that Houston Methodist Hospital revoked their privileges um, appropriately, I might add, and there's just all this misinformation. So let me show you what this doctor's doing. It's an ENT doctor, and um, Mary Tally Bowden, MD. So. Tweeting, tweeting all the time about ivermectin. It might not be as deadly as everyone says. Speak up. So what they did is this a tweet that shows uh, there's a, a website, c19ivermectin.com. It's a pro-ivermectin website. And, you know, P less than 001, 67% improvement. So, okay, so I went and looked at this, 126 global studies. So what they did is they pooled all the bad studies, okay, and then took all the numbers and came up with this number. So you've got like 12 people, and, and, you know, anecdotally, 10 of them got better, so ivermectin works. That counts. So it's not, you know, it's not a controlled trial. This is just gathering a bucket of, and making this number so you look good. And it's really unfortunate. This is not scientific method. This is just churn to make a political point. And I, it's very sad because it's misleading people to think, well, the data are great. I showed you the data a couple of weeks ago. The data is really in the middle. I mean, there's some in vitro it sort of works at really high dose, higher than you can take because it makes you sick if you took that much. There's one study that showed a little bit of efficacy. One study showed no efficacy. So, you know, I kind of say, I don't know. Let's do the proper study. And if it works, I'll be the first to recommend it, but we don't know. 
So this is really fair. Um, so that's one thing. Let me show you more. So this is the website for this particular clinic. Uh, you can get breathing treatments if you have COVID. It says many patients with COVID-19 experience tightness in their chest, and they give this sort of lower airway breathing treatment. That's going to fix it. IV fluids and IV vitamins. If you have COVID at home and you have fever and you're dehydrated, that you can go in, they'll give you some fluid with IV vitamins and IV Tylenol, which is, by the way, extremely expensive. Um, and then vitamin injections. This is how you're going to treat COVID. And then a post-COVID, here's a really interesting one. Breathe MD has partnered with Cleveland Heart Clinic to offer important screening blood tests for vascular. So I went on the Cleveland Heart Clinic. Well, it's not the Cleveland Clinic. You're thinking it is, right? They have great, it's Cleveland Clinic. They know all about hearts. Well, it's not. It's called the Cleveland Heart Laboratory. And it's a private laboratory that does blood tests for heart disease. So it's not the Cleveland Clinic. I just want, so, but if I wouldn't, if I wouldn't go to the trouble to look that up, I would say, oh, she partners with the Cleveland Clinic. It must be, you know, she must know what she's doing. It's not the Cleveland Clinic. It's just a laboratory in Cleveland. Sinus therapy, when you're 10 days off, they'll do a sinus wash. It should make you feel better. There's a lymphatic drainage that can become stagnant, and that's going to get fixed in infrared sauna. So, you know, maybe this will help make people feel better. I don't know, but it's not going to take care of the virus. And then finally, here's the new vaccination policy. So the, the doctor is very upset that, uh, that refusing ivermectin, and if you're not immunized, that the hospitals don't want to see you and this kind of stuff. So what she's doing, she says, given the current climate and the writing on the wall, I am shifting my practice to focus on treating only the unvaccinated. In order to make room for unvaccinated who cannot find care, I will not be accepting new patients who are vaccinated. Okay, so, I mean, I have trouble with this. And again, this is, if you're into this doctor, you're gonna say, oh, this vaccine's bad. Now, I want you to read the final paragraph. I'm not anti-vaccine, but all the data I've collected suggests the vaccine is not working. 42% of patients we treated last month with IV monoclonal antibodies for symptomatic COVID-19 were fully vaccinated. So I wanna focus on that number. So in order to get the monoclonals, you have to qualify and it's a high risk bucket. Okay, very high risk. And so you're already high risk. You're vaccinated with waning immunity and we know those are the people getting breakthrough infections. However, to get monoclonals, you also can't be very sick. You can't require oxygen. So these are mildly ill, high risk people who probably aren't critically ill because they got the vaccine. So this number is extremely deceptive and does not tell you the full picture that the monoclonal people are high risk, very mildly ill, getting monoclonals early on with breakthrough infection because of waning immunity where a booster would have taken care of it. So this is what's going on. This is a physician who's now been kicked out of Houston Methodist Hospital. And there are lots of people following this doctor. Uh, and unfortunately, um, it is what it is, uh, but it's very sad when you see 42% failure rate, it's not correct. And I, I told you why. So it's the high risk monoclonal group who are mildly ill. They don't even need oxygen, probably because they got the vaccine. All right, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, we're still doing this in 20, we'll probably still be doing it in 2022, but we're in a much better place. The winter resurgence is occurring in the US. It's really bad in the EU. We clearly have cases in the upper Midwest and now New England, the Northeast. We are going to need to be very vigilant. We have all the tools we need to manage this this time, but we're actually going to need to do it. It's going to take a little bit of discipline. We know what to do. 
It's anticipated that the hospitalization and death rate is going to be relatively low in heavily immunized states compared to previous resurgences. But you saw, see from the Danbury problem and that nursing home in Canaan, Connecticut, we're going to need to get aggressive about boosting our vulnerable to keep those numbers down. So far, Connecticut has had a modest increase in hospitalizations and deaths, and there's some outbreaks in nursing homes I mentioned, vigilance. Despite clear data showing immunization reduces the likelihood of mortality and hospitalization because of this breakthrough that's happening now with waning immunity, some people are seizing on that and confusing anti-vaccination rhetoric. It's not what we need to be doing right now. We need to be vaccinating more people primarily, which will keep the death rate and morbidity down. And we need to be boosting vulnerable because we know all vaccines wane, particularly for respiratory pathogens. Uh, the FDA is going to authorize boosters for everyone shortly. Um, I highly recommend adults above 18. It will only be adults 18 and above. It's not going to be for below that. So we are going to have to grapple how do we manage some of our children in the adolescent age group. And I don't have an answer for you on that yet. The PDX rollout has done gone out really well, actually. I, I'm, I'm quite impressed how that's rolled out nationally. About 10% of children have already gotten it. It's, it's only been a week or so. Uh, so it's being accepted by parents. Uh, some are waiting and watching. I get that. But I do think we're going to have great tools moving into this winter to keep our schools open, to continue to have our economy open, but with vigilance. You know, wear a mask indoors because we have a lot of community spread again. Boost your, boost your grandmother and get that done so that they're protected and take care of your family. I, I think we'll get through this in a much better place than we did last winter. So I'm going to open it up for questions now. Um, Elizabeth Anderson is going to be our moderator today. And again, thank you for being here. Uh, another uh, Ask the Experts in um, November of 2021. We're still here. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, as Dr. Schreiber said, I'll be filling in for Dr. Salazar for um, moderating today. I did just want to put in the chat quickly, our next session will be on December 3rd. Um, we hope you all enjoy a lovely, happy and healthy and safe Thanksgiving. Um, so you can add that date to your Outlook calendar by clicking on that registration link. Um, okay, so a lot of questions about the booster coming in. Okay. Um, so- uh, Can, everyone, uh, can uh, everyone hear Elizabeth? Sound good enough? Everyone good? All, all right. right. Um, so, a lot of folks are wondering when should teens get the booster um, ages 12 to 17 yeah it's a great question and at the moment the booster release that i'm hearing about is 18 and above obviously that's going to change um you know we're going to six months out we're probably going to need to boost adolescents in that group that had the pfizer at the moment, I don't believe that's going to be authorized. So it's a great question, and, and it's my belief that we're probably going to need to come up with a boosting plan for that age group, but it's not yet. Okay, great. And is there any info on boosters for high-risk children of those same ages, 12 to 18, who received their initial vaccine uh, more than six months ago? It's the same situation. At the moment, um, the FDA is, is hurrying to get the most elderly adults, they've not focused on that pediatric cohort. I think it's a critical question, and one of which we certainly are bringing up with both the DPH and, and indirectly through the FDA, that they're going to need to address boosting for high-risk children, exactly the way they're addressing boosting for high-risk adults. Um, that hasn't happened yet. So today, these boosters are licensed for 18 and above. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and um, 
So we, uh, from Stacy Chanda, she says, thank you for a very informative session as usual. Uh, do you have any talking points for vaccine hesitant patients and families when they bring up headlines about the surges and highly vaccinated populations? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great question. And certainly I get that question as well, because as you saw that doctor exploiting that, were, were, unless you knew the nuances of who actually can get the monoclonal, oh my God, 42%. The reality is those people were probably not in the hospital because they got the vaccine and had a breakthrough infection. And I think um, what I would do is I step back and I talk about the virus. It's very unpredictable. And particularly with children, we have missy kids and strange uh, presentations of this virus. We have a long haul clinic now where we're seeing kids just don't feel better or never get better. There've been a hundred deaths. Um, so and in addition, most families have vulnerable people all mixed in. And so in my family, I'd like not, I, I want my wall around my family so that we don't make each other sick. So this vaccine provides that. It's gonna also provide the ability to keep our schools open because there'll be a lot less kids sick and spreading it around. It probably will allow us to get rid of the masks in school. And so for us to move forward, uh, to move back to more normal state, we're going to need all age groups immune to this virus. And I would prefer my child not to get immune to this virus by actually getting the virus because it's just so unpredictable. And you can say it's 100 deaths, but it's not very many until it's your kid. Or you can say Missy doesn't happen in very many kids until it's your kid. Or you can say most kids feel great a week later until it's your kid in long haul clinic. So I, I, that's how I approach it. And I don't want my family subject to that. And so I, I lay that out. How, do, how am I thinking for my own family? And then it's, it's up to them. I mean, they have to think through the exact same thought process for their own family and decide. To me, the risk benefits so far on the benefit side. Now, the risk is important to address. And I think it, it's been given to 200, 300, 400 million people worldwide. And there's just been very little problem. That's amazing. It's probably the largest vaccine trial in history, really in the shortest time. There is a slight incidence of increased myocarditis in teenage boys, mostly very small. It's not zero, it's real. And you have to address that and say it's very unlikely, but the risk of myocarditis if you get the virus is about 10 times higher than the risk if you get vaccinated. So people understand that and they have to make that decision. It's a risk benefit decision they have to make in their own family. So I think it's a really, really important question. I always approach it, what would I do for my own family and why am I doing that? And, and so, um, you know, our, our son and daughter-in-law have a three-year-old, our grandson, we would love to immunize him tomorrow if we could, because it would allow us, quite frankly, to gather more as a family. He could play with kids more freely and we would be less nervous about it and probably less at risk because we're high risk now by age. And so there's so many family reasons to get this done and protect your family. Um, also, if you tell the facts about the resurgence that it's most of the people in the hospital are elderly with waning immunity because their immune systems don't work so well, people get that. Vaccines working really well. I showed you the graph, you know, 10 times uh, less getting it, 12 times less host uh, uh, hospitalization and death. And I, I mean, it's just so obvious. The, the facts are so, the vaccines work so well. So uh, this pandemic has dragged on. It's not at all surprising that months and months and months later, we're having breakthrough infections with waning immunity because most respiratory virus vaccines don't last that long so in terms of making immune. Okay. All right. 
Great. Um, and regarding the myocarditis in young men, as you just mentioned, um, who who do who did receive a booster, is there any new data on that? You know, there's not. Now, I, I would refer you if you go on Google ACIP uh, COVID kid vaccine or something like that, you'll actually pull up the whole slide deck that the CDC had when they approved the um, the vaccine in younger kids, and they reviewed myocarditis in great detail. And if you look at it, it's a very small number, they all get better. Um, and fairly quickly, there was one outlier who took a longer time to get better. I mean, they tracked down every case. I mean, it's really great data. And I looked at it and I felt much more relaxed that this is really unusual and that all the kids got better. And so, um, but I, I urge people to look at the slide deck. Maybe I'll try to pull out some of those slides for the next talk in December to show um, it was a very rigorous review. And they decided, the ACP looked at all these, ACIP looked at all these data and said the benefit far outweighs the risk because the, if 5 million kids get infected and we know the myocarditis rate in natural infection is 10 times higher than the vaccine rate, you're gonna have a lot of kids with myocarditis and they don't all get better when you have COVID. So, you know, again, the risk benefit becomes very obvious, but it's very difficult, you know, again, the, the media and the politicians and all, it's difficult to kind of have those discussions now. People aren't listening to each other anymore. Okay, great. Um, Eileen and Chris Lawrence want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving and thank you for another wonderful presentation. Could you please repeat what you said about not giving the flu vaccine too early? Oh, so, you know, we have each year, um, the World Health Organization, the CDC, others, they, they survey influenza around the world because it mutates every year. And then they figure out what the vaccine is going to look like. And they, they kind of have that figured out by, you know, August. You don't give the vaccine in August because influenza immunity from the flu vaccine, you know, kind of lasts about six months. And so you want to give it in October right before the peak of influenza comes up. So you have the peak of your antibody titers. So it's pretty common with respiratory viruses that we know there's waning immunity after immunization. And, and this may end up being like flu, where we get an annual booster uh, from for this for this virus that's probably going to stick around for a while. So um, so that's what I was meaning about that. So you don't you try you don't give the flu shot over the summer because you'll have waning immunity by the time you get to January. You give it in the fall, right before winter starts and before influenza takes off. Now, COVID right now is not looking seasonal and it may turn into a seasonal virus as we get more immune. It's possible the summer months, we just won't see much. In the winter months, we move indoors, we'll see more. But right now it hasn't done that because it's a non-immune population. It's been spreading every month. So, but it may convert to a more influenza-like situation. So it's a great question, but that's why. Um, and with Thanksgiving being next week, and I know on our website, we do have some um, advice regarding gatherings, but um, there's a family that of about 30 people all vaccinated, except the children who are under the age of five. Um, not all adults have have had the booster yet. Um, do you think this will be safe to gather? Do you recommend testing prior? If so, rapid PCR. Appreciate your thoughts. Great question. So, and again, our family, every family is trying to get their arms around what to do that's safe. First off, um, everyone has to be asymptomatic, right? Nobody can have even a mild cold. So, if they have a mild cold, don't go. Um, I think testing, in my opinion, is not helpful because it fools you to think it's okay. So you get tested on Tuesday and on Thursday you're positive because you're incubating. So I'm not a fan of testing everyone because it just tells you everyone's negative that day. I mean, you know, I guess that's helpful if that's one day that you're doing Thanksgiving. 
Um, to me, it's really, a, a, again, it's a risk-benefit analysis. So if you everyone in the household's a young, healthy adult, and you're bringing in some um, unimmunized kids, I'm good. And they're all immunized. Every uh, Young, healthy adults all immunized. I mean, I'm good. I, I think, again, the likelihood, even if someone gets ill, it will be a mild case because they're immunized and, and you're probably good. I think if you've got elderly or high risk in that group of 30, you want to make sure they're boosted. Because then I would worry it is possible for an unimmunized child to bring into the household be relatively asymptomatic and you could make that immunized elderly who's not boosted quite sick as we're seeing from the Danbury data. So that's my advice. So if you have high risk people uh, in the household, make sure they're boosted and then yeah, bring everyone together and the likelihood it's not zero, the likelihood of risk to your family members or your guests is, is, is pretty low. So it, it, ask another question. If that's not clear, somebody else ask a question a different way, but that, that's what we, my suggestion is. Okay, great. Um, would you be able to comment on the one to two million or so children across the US who have gotten the first dose of the vaccine over the past two weeks? How might this be reported and followed? Um, well, the, the, uh, what will be followed is the um, CDC has a really good, if you're thinking of side effects, there's a really good reporting mechanism for any problems with the vaccine that goes quickly in. And by the way, that's how myocarditis popped up. They have a really good post-vaccine surveillance and they saw the cases very early pop up reported in and that's where the discussion, they really drilled down that very quickly. So that reporting mechanism is working. So if something pops up in a couple million kids who've gotten one dose, we're gonna know about it fairly quickly, which is again, again one of the, the um, good things that's happened in this pandemic is understanding how to get that reporting more efficient. So it's pretty good right now. So I'm very confident something unusual would pop up relatively quickly in that reporting mechanism, if that's what you're asking. Now, I'm excited that millions of kids have gotten their first dose. And in the other side of it means we now have a partially immune pediatric population who will be fully immune in a few weeks, um, which is a huge uh, boon for us, because again, I, to me, it means that we're going to be moving to schools in a more normal fashion, you know, coming next year. So I, I think it's a great achievement, very rapid achievement. It's a tribute to those parents and families. So that's the good side in terms of any side effects. The reporting mechanism is quite strong now. Um, there's a provider that's seeing uh, parents who are refusing the flu vaccine for kids because they already got the COVID vaccine. Is anybody else seeing this? And do you have any recommendations on that? You know, I, I guess I, I'm not surprised by anything right now because there's just so much churn on the social media. And you, as you see, so much of it's inaccurate or emotional, not driven by facts, driven by ideology. So I, I'm not surprised. I, I, I start off by not, you know, in any way being judgmental. I just try to explain. So Influenza is another bad infection. We don't want to ignore it. We do immunize our children because a lot, many are hospitalized and there are some deaths every year from the regular old influenza. And there's no contraindication in giving COVID influenza vaccine together or a week apart or 10 days apart. You will, your immune system can figure out very quickly, I make antibodies to COVID, I make antibodies to influenza, you know, it's not a problem. So. Um, I think it's very important that we get flu vaccine because what we don't want to have happen is have a COVID surge and then also have influenza surge and the and our ICUs filling up with both elderly and children with influenza uh, while COVID's taking off. We just can't handle it. So it's very important for us to really keep influenza contained. Now, by the way, you may remember last winter we didn't have any influenza because everybody wore a mask. We were kind of 
works. And so again, another mechanism to keep influenza under control is when we work into stores with lots of people we don't know, you put a mask on and that actually will help prevent the spread of influenza as well. Uh, regarding the, um, the Canaan uh, slide that you showed, the Canaan outbreak, what was the booster status of those who died? Unboosted. Yeah, it's a great question. That's where I was pointing out only 42% of vulnerable assisted living in uh, Connecticut on the DPH slide are boosted. So we have work to do very quickly to get that up to 80, 90%. It's happening. It just, we got to get that done. So, but they were all, they were immunized, unboosted. Dr. Pitagoff's wondering um, why the mammogram changes after vaccinations. The recommendation was um, not to schedule, schedule for at least eight weeks after. Why? So uh, let me repeat that. So um, the recommendations to wait, I, I thought it was six weeks, but six to eight weeks after COVID before you get your mammogram. The reason is, is they were getting some false positives. And that's because the shot would go in the arm and then it's picked up by the lymphatic system and you make a lot of uh, immune response. And some of those immune responses called, caused some nodes to get a little big. And when you did the mammogram, that would show up and it would be rule out um, uh, breast cancer instead of just an irritated gland from making that good immune response to the vaccine. So if you wait six to eight weeks, it's gone. You don't see it and you're not gonna have a false positive mammogram. And that's the reason that's recommended. It's not a bad reason because your immune response is working, but every once in a while, it'll show up um, in the breast area as, an, as a node and it's not cancer. It's just your immune system making antibodies against COVID. It's a great question. And what would, what would you recommend to do about the Pfizer vaccine for our patients who are turning 12 in the next month or two? Uh, get the smaller dose and boost with the larger dose, wait until they turn 12? The, the CDC and the FDA say do it only by age. So if you have an 11-year-old, they're going to get the 11-year-old dose. And then when they get boost, they get their second dose today. And when they're 12, if they're a borderline birthday, they're going to get the adult, the larger dose. So that's what you have to do. That's how it's licensed. They want it strictly by age. And, and I think it makes sense. I mean, we know that you're gonna make a good antibody response either way, um, but they want it by age. So you're gonna give the lower dose to the 11 year old. And then when they turn 12, they'll end up getting the larger dose as their second dose. And regarding the deer, does that mean that ticks on deer can transmit COVID? Uh, no, uh, I've not seen any data whatsoever <clears throat> that ticks uh, can transmit this virus. So the answer is no. Um, what it, all it means is that it's in the environment and wild animals, probably in other wild animals too. I mean, you know, remember that months ago I showed you the Danish, like did away, they euthanized the entire mink industry because COVID broke out into their mink industry. Well, probably ferrets and other animals can carry. We know cats can carry it. So for all we know, bobcats have it. We don't know. It's just out there. So ticks aren't going to transmit it. Uh, it's a very different pathogen and I, I, I don't see it as being insect borne. But if you're exposed to a deer, um, maybe you have captive deer, some farms do that. Or if you're a hunter, you could be exposed and then you wanna make sure you're immune and you wanna use precautions if you're, if you're harvesting that deer. So it, it probably needs to change the behavior of the hunting community, which is again, fascinating in its own right, but no, it's not in ticks and I don't anticipate it will get into ticks. We have other problems with ticks. I mean, you know, in our in our town, about half the ticks are Lyme positive. So if you get bitten, you just assume you were exposed. So we, you know we have to focus on Lyme disease with ticks. We don't have any problem with COVID. And then another booster question: um, someone who's fully vaccinated and then um, got COVID after being fully vaccinated, is do you have a timeline in regards to yeah. when to get the booster? You know, I probably use the same ninety day 
Uh, I'll assume that that natural infection boosted you for about 90 days and you're in pretty good shape and I would wait. And then at the end of 90 days, I'd probably get boosted. I have no data. There have not been, I've not seen data yet looking at immunized with a breakthrough infection. Do they get boosted? It's a great question. I've not seen those data. So my suggestion is just sort of a common sense. You know, you'll be 90 days pretty good. Perhaps before the end of that, I would get boosted. But not, you know, I, I'm not sure I would do it two weeks after because you probably, you know, have all sorts of uh, uh, antibody responses already going to the natural infection. I don't have data to support that opinion, and I've not seen any data yet. I'll look for it though for next time. It's a really good question. We're going to see more of that question because there will be breakthroughs. And then what do we do about boosting those people if they're high risk? Or it's a great question. I've not seen any data yet. But common sense, you know, you know, three three months will be good. Then get boosted. Can you address why we are seeing so many more non-COVID illnesses this year, given the fact that kids are still wearing masks in schools? Um, you know, I think more people, so the answer, we are seeing more non-COVID. We had a lot of RSV this summer. We had um, stuff, just normal pediatric stuff that we haven't seen in a while. And I think people are more out and about. You may remember during lockdown, I mean, it was really quiet. That's changed. The stores are open, people are out and about, restaurants are open. So even though kids have masks in school, the families are out and about, and, and I think you, you, you see we still have community spread, so, so we, we're transmitting stuff more. So that's my, in, in my read, and actually, to me, it's not a bad thing. It shows that we're moving more towards a normal social interaction environment because we're seeing a lot more normal pediatric pathogens. And look, let's be honest, as we COVID fades and we move more and more into a more normal, we're going to see more and more other pathogens we haven't seen in a while, unless we all decide we're going to wear masks every winter like they do in Korea. You know, maybe we should. I don't know, but we'll see more as we move to a more normal state, and that just shows that we're moving out of the COVID era. So I think that's why. Uh, and since we are seeing uh, more kids in school and daycares with asthma, URI, stomach bugs, uh, any new updates on who should be tested for COVID and who who does not need a test? I, I think you know, given the data I showed you that we're in a mild resurgence now in the United States and and definitely in New England, uh, I would test. Um, for, you know, mild cold even. I think we need to know. And uh, unfortunately, as we move to a resurgence type of model, we're going to need to be testing a lot. So the answer is I would test for most of those to see if they're COVID positive. Unfortunately, maybe had things continued to go down with very little community spread, you would stop that. But now that it's heading back up, we need to know. So, you know, it, when in doubt, test. Can you please address the difference between a third dose for immunosuppressed persons and a booster dose? They're really the same thing. So you remember early on, particularly for solid organ transplants, I, sh I showed you some data that two doses really didn't do much, but a third dose really boosted them up and they were pretty well protected. So that's with the original immunocompromised data and there's more now. So I would say for those groups, particularly solid organ transplant <clears throat> that, um, Three doses is probably going to be the standard of care to get them to an immune state for COVID. So that's immunocompromised. So that's not true with non-immunocompromised. Two doses of the vaccine gave pretty good protection pretty quickly, and then it lasted for months. But remember, that wasn't true in the solid organ. So I think three doses for them is sort of a standard of care to get them immune to COVID as opposed to uh, people with intact immune systems. Um, I've not seen, you know, there are data now in some IBD patients on biologics who respond pretty well to two doses of the vaccine. We're getting more and more data for more specific 
groups who are immunocompromised or mildly immunocompromised. And as more of those data come in, I'll present that to you. So we don't have data for all of the immunocompromised groups right now. So wondering, is there hope for the spring? When do you think we can stop getting COVID tests on every stuffy nose in school-age kids? Well, let's see what happens with the research. I think there's great hope. Look, we've got excellent vaccines. We figured out the waning immunity issue. We've got boosters rolling out. Um, we know the mask data. I mean, masks work. I don't care what Facebook says or the angry parents screaming at the Board of Education. The data show mass works in schools. If, you, if all the kids wear it, you have a three or fourfold less outbreaks. I mean, the data is just so clear. Um, and so uh, we know what to do. We now have two antivirals that are going to be licensed fairly soon. Uh, so I, we have great tools, and I'm optimistic in the spring that we will be using all those tools and moving to a different place. So I'm very optimistic. Uh, I think COVID is with us for good, and we're going to need to manage that risk as we move out to a more normal situation intelligently. And it, we're not going to be risk-free, just like we're not in influenza season. If you had the flu vaccine and you're 90, um, you know, that vaccine didn't make you as immune as a 25-year-old. And so you want to be careful in flu season. You don't go out. And if you get influenza, you could end up in the hospital. We're going to have to act like that about COVID. Um, you know, high-risk people are going to need to be careful. Uh, the majority of the population will be immune and immunized, uh, children, you know, so I think we'll be in a much better place in the spring if we apply the discipline to do what we need to do. Now, the caveat, two caveats to that, the rest of the country, um, as you know, is very fragmented in this. We are not aligned. So you got Florida doing their thing and you got Montana doesn't want to immunize anybody, um, you know, so there are going to be outbreaks continued in pockets because we have under immunized um, areas. The second problem is the rest of the world's got a lot of COVID. There'll probably be other variants. So that's kind of the, you know, you have to just keep that in the back of your mind. It'd be great if the whole country would just act one way, just immunize everybody, you know, wear a mask when you need to. We'd probably be done with this. The whole country would be sort of like Connecticut. But we're not, and we just have to live with that. So those are the two caveats about being in a better place in the spring. But right now, yeah, I mean, we have great tools. We know what to do. And again, look at our numbers. They're already showing that we've muted this, okay, compared to look at Germany just rocketing off. So we've muted it in Connecticut, but we won't if we don't pay attention. So, and, and I will say I'm so impressed by the leadership politically, by DPH, by the medical community, and frankly, by all of the parents and citizens of Connecticut. Most people get it and have done a great job managing this. We just have to continue to do that. But we have great new tools coming online. I see that we're at nine o'clock. I was gonna say, we still have quite a few questions that we'll do our best to get answered and put up online, or if not, we'll, well answer I'll do, I'll do my best to get them online. Again, thank you so much for being here. Everybody have a great Thanksgiving and there's, uh, be safe how you do it. Uh, I think we have the tools and the ability to do that uh, with our families uh, this season. So everyone have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care, bye-bye.